What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Don't skip the intro. Don't skip this intro. I know that people might have a tendency to do that, and that's okay. But this one is actually really important to set the stage. So let's set it. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast. I am your host, Chris Stemp. Thanks so much for joining me. This week on the show, we're interviewing somebody you've probably never heard of. Now, that doesn't mean they're unworthy. In fact, on the contrary, I think it's one of our best episodes for the exact reason that this isn't some fame-seeking, best-selling author. However, it is a smart person. We're interviewing a guy. His name is Alexi Guzzi. Alexi is an independent researcher. He has a background in economics, mathematics, and cognitive science, and he spends most of his time thinking about meta-science, biology, and philanthropy. His goal is really to learn, help others learn, make the world better. Totally a valuable goal. Now, he does this through his blog, which is very simply guzzy.com, G-U-Z-E-Y.com. And this isn't some podunk blog. As you'll find out, the one post that we're discussing has gotten over 100,000 views in a very short period of time. But why this post? Why Alexi? Well, about a year ago, I became aware of a guy. His name's Matthew Walker. He wrote a book called Why We Sleep. He blew up. His book was like an international bestseller. He was everywhere. Okay, He was on all these podcasts. That's where I first heard him. He was getting a lot of acclaim, and he has the credentials to back it up. He is a British scientist, a professor of neuroscience and psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. He is the founder and director of the Center for Human Sleep Science at Berkeley. He has his PhD, et cetera, et cetera. So look, this guy, Matthew, has all of the makings of a smart person, wrote a book that everyone respected, 
and is now being used as a scientific resource on sleep. In Matthew's book, he essentially comes right out and says, we have a problem with sleep. You have to sleep, you know, somewhere between seven and nine hours, mostly in that eight hour range, or else your likelihood of getting cancer, getting Alzheimer's, and essentially dying skyrockets. Okay, so let me make the link. We interviewed David Epstein not too long ago about range. And one thing he said that really stuck with me is he talked about how he kind of came out and disproved some of Malcolm Gladwell's work about the 10,000 hour rule. Epstein also talked about why Angela Duckworth's work about grit is perhaps being misinterpreted or even in the book perhaps was misconstrued. Well, in talking to Epstein, I kind of thought, you know, I want to do a better job trying to find multiple angles if possible. So I'm having this conversation with a good friend of mine, and he happens to say, well, have you heard of Matthew Walker? I said, of course. He goes, well, there's a guy who did a lot of research about his book and has basically disproven most of what Walker says about sleep. And I said, I have to learn about this guy in steps, Alexi Guzzi. So if you go to Alexi's site, guzzi.com, he has this really in-depth, seemingly well-researched post about why Matthew Walker essentially lied or at a minimum vastly overstated his claims about the importance of sleep and perhaps even more specifically, the definitive proof that a lack of sleep kills you. Now, look, we go into this in great depth. This is a fairly long episode, so I'm not going to belabor this. I'm also interested in what you think. I'd like to sort of outsource our brain, our thinking, our fact-checking to you as well. Um, of course, we do a little bit of that, but until we make you know hundreds of thousands of dollars and can afford a team, we go with what we have here. So remember, you can reach us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. So tune into this episode. We talked to Alexi. He is in Russia. I do want to say that the audio at times is not perfect. And that is because we are literally basically on opposite ends of the world. Additionally, he has an accent. Look, he can speak multiple languages. I cannot. So I'm not judging anybody who's speaking fluently in their second or third language. But just keep these things in mind. And again, let us know what you think. Also, share this episode. I mean, look, there are people out there right now who are convinced that Walker's work is bulletproof. It is the gospel. And this is another take. They need to hear both sides. So send them this link. Yes, is that a plug? Of course it is. But what do I care? Look, if one other person or 10 other or 100 other people listen, it's not like I'm directly benefiting necessarily. I genuinely do this because I want everyone, myself included, to be better informed. If you have any way of helping me do that, whether it be through feedback, guests, thought processes, sharing, etc., let's do it. And of course, if you want to help us get better, patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And oh, by the way, you will have the ability to ask guests questions. So I will, in advance, let people know who are interviewing, and you could have asked Alexi a question, but that only goes for Patreon supporters. All right, so let's get into it. We are talking to Alexi Guzzi. You can find him at guzzi.com. You can also find him on Twitter at Alexi Guzzi. And primarily, we are talking about why Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Enjoy.
So look, I got to start here with a, where are you in the world? Because I have a general sense, but I think this is such a fascinating point. Where are you? Uh, I live in Moscow. Okay. Moscow. So you're in Russia and what time is it right now? It's 10 AM. Uh, and where I am near DC, what time is it there? It's 6 PM here. 6 PM. Okay. Cause it was so interesting when we connected and you're like, yeah, let's do it. I'm on UTC plus eight, I think is what you said. That is the time zone I have genuinely never heard of. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I should correct that uh, I, I'm in the UTC plus three. Oh, UTC plus three. See, I'm just making yeah. stuff up. Like, I have no idea where it is. Yeah. Um, but it's really fascinating. And I want to talk more about just the US and Russia and just talking with somebody like yourself. But But that's not why we're here. We are here because I became aware of you through a tweet which was leading to a blog post, which essentially demolished Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, which many people listening will be aware of. Give us a little background on who are you and, and where did this come from? I finished my undergraduate degree a year and a half ago. Uh, I got bachelor's in mathematics and economics. I started a master's program in cognitive science after that. And I left that prog uh, the program about a year ago now. And since then, I've been mostly writing and doing the research in meta science and uh, basically learning science and learning biology and thinking about a lot of different things. So you are in your early 20s. Is that correct? Yeah, I I'm 22. What got you to this point now where essentially you are doing deep research on some really complex topics and writing them in amazing blog posts that are getting read all over the world. Like what got you to this point to be this curious and to spend this much time doing what you do? First of all, where does my, I guess, natural curiosity come from? And the answer to this is, I think mostly my parents, uh, both of my parents, uh, like just naturally pretty curious people. And uh, I, I kind of was born in an environment where I always had a lot of books. I always had a lot of time to read uh, and to think about things and to cultivate this curiosity. In terms of where do I get the time to write such long detailed blog posts? After so I finished my bachelor's a year and a half ago, and when I finished my bachelor's, I started looking for a job. And then I kind of realized that, wait, I can actually just like write blog posts full time and do my own research. And uh, also I got funding from Taylor Cowan to do uh, a research project. And then I got a grant from a couple of readers. Uh, and then uh, it, yeah, it, it just turned out that I can actually just write and do my own research independently full time. Uh, so this is what I'm doing now. Does the blog really support you financially at this point? It sort of supports me financially. So I don't run any ads. So I, I don't really have any direct income from my blog, but uh, I did get grants from Tyler Cowan, essentially via my blog. And I did get a, a sizable grant from two of my readers who just, like just emailed me and were like, do you want uh, basically financial support for the next few months so that you can just write and do your own research? I see enough work. I interview enough people who are making a boatload of money off of 
I don't want to say bad information, but an overabundance of marketing, an overabundance of just hot air, and a lack of depth. Now, this is not the mm -hmm. majority, but it's out there. So when I somebody makes me aware of your work and I'll go check out Gwern, you know, that's just from my perspective, that's what we need. And if we don't set up a viable business model to do more depth, to go deeper, then we are going to keep getting shallow pop culture things like that, because that's mm -hmm. the model that supports artists and intellectuals. What do you think right. about the model? I'm sure you've given it a lot of thought. In fact, I actually wrote an essay about this a year ago. Uh, and the essay was called Reviving Patronage and Revolutionary Industrial Research. And I was essentially writing about how the current structure of funding science is not really working and that perhaps what we should try is to look back at how science was funded in the past, which was done via patrons. I think that this model should be explored, not just in science, but uh, in a bunch of different domains. So I guess artists are already kind of funded by patrons who buy their, their art. But if we're talking about Gwern, and for example, if Gwern or other really insightful bloggers did have like a couple of people who would just like continuously support their work and enable them to not think about how to fund themselves. I think that would be extremely valuable. Let's talk about you. So your website is, and if I'm pronouncing this wrong, let me know, but it's guzy.com, G-U-Z-E-Y.com. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. So for those listening who have never heard of it, uh, and, and look, we are going to get into kind of just uh, ripping apart this Why We Sleep book. Um, but that's not all you do. Tell us in a nutshell, like, what is your blog? And what do you aim to achieve every time you start writing? Uh, I'm not sure there is a uniting theme in terms of the topics I cover on my blog. Uh, I write about technological progress, about science, about personal productivity, about books, uh, about things that I like. Uh, the reason I decide to write about something is typically because it is interesting to me and I think it would be useful to other people and useful in terms of either helping people think better about stuff or in terms of being practical and improving their life. From my perspective, and the reason I vibed with it right away is I feel like you're doing in a blog exactly what we're trying to do on a podcast. That's what it seems like. It's just what's on your mind and then dive deep and then present it to the world in a way that sparks their interest and sparks maybe more learning, better understanding. And like you said, just with the end goal of improving lives. But I, I know people are like, Chris, enough already. We want to hear about this Matthew Walker thing. So first, for those that don't know, listen to the intro if they skipped it. But Matthew Walker is this quote unquote expert who is everywhere, most popular for his interviews, probably on Joe Rogan, Peter Atia, uh, places like that. He's the sleep guy. And he wrote a book called Why We Sleep that is very adamant and very specific in saying that if you don't sleep enough, and by enough, we're talking about eight hours. Essentially, you will die a horrible death, you will get cancer, you will get Alzheimer's disease. And look, coming from a guy who runs a sleep lab 
I mean, his credentials seemingly line up to say there's no reason to question it. This is what it is. And the world essentially has taken this book as gospel as of the last year and a half or so. So in comes Alexi here, and essentially you pick the first chapter and you come up with all of these false claims that are made. So let's start here. How did this even come up? Like what made you choose this book to research, to, to, to prove or disprove? Originally, I started reading the book uh, because uh, I was basically arguing about it too much with a friend of mine on Twitter. Uh, and uh, to unpack this a little bit, uh, uh, I have, a, a f- yeah, I, I have a friend on Twitter who also writes a blog, and uh, he really liked the book. And I watched uh, Matt Walker's TED talk, and I thought that it sounded kind of suspicious, and that uh, it, it basically didn't pass my best detector. So we got into a couple of arguments over several months on Twitter about Walker, and at some point, uh, I, I basically was like, "Well, I, I should like read I sh- instead of just like looking at his TED talk, I should actually." read his book and figure out if my BS detector is correct or not. And uh, basically, I should get to the bottom of it. And so uh, this is why I decided to read the book. One thing I'm curious about is this idea of confirmation bias, right? So I want to ask you a little bit later what you think Matthew was doing to get so many things incorrect, in your opinion. But in the same stance, somebody could make this argument. Well, Alexi was doing the same thing, meaning Matthew went into it trying to prove that his life's work, this belief in sleep is necessary. And so he created a book to back that. But in the same token, somebody could say, well, Alexi had been arguing against this guy for a long time. So when he went into it, he was trying to prove himself correct. How did you think through making sure there wasn't this confirmation bias and you weren't really just on a witch hunt? What ended up happening is that I genuinely didn't know uh, whether the book was going to be good or bad when I started reading it. Uh, And I started reading it because I hope that if, uh, as I said, my intuition was wrong, then I would actually learn about sleep and I would improve my sleeping habits. And uh basically i would make my life better and what happened was simply that as i was reading the book uh the the, the things that i were reading and the facts that were uh, mentioned in the book uh just didn't line up and so many things just seemed off that uh it started to be obvious that a lot of things are not right and that that a lot of things are not right and, and then essentially, I, I just was trying to figure out what is the truth in each case. And so in my post that uh, in my post about the book, uh, I referenced a lot of research literature. And essentially what happened was that for a bunch of statements uh, in the book, I decided to check the primary literature and to figure out what uh, science actually says about things uh, instead of just directly trying to prove that worker is correct or not correct. 
really what you're saying is you went into it not trying to make him wrong. You went in thinking, look, if this is true, I can really improve sleep, which everybody's trying to do. But as you were reading, there were these glaring inconsistencies. And we're not talking things that you needed to go to the research for quite yet. And I say that because you did a ton of research, but there must have been things that as a researcher, they jumped out at you, causing you to dive in. Do you remember what any of those initial inconsistencies were? I think that the first thing that really stood out to me was uh, the following sentence. Uh, I'm looking at the book right now. Uh, oh, great. Walker, walk on, on, on the very first page of chapter one, uh, Walker writes, routinely sleeping less than six or seven hours a night demolishes your immune system more than doubling your risk of cancer. And this statement stood out because uh, I immediately started to think about the kind of study that you would need to show that this is true is basically a randomized controlled trial where you assign groups of people assign people into two random groups and then uh, make one of them sleep less than the of them sleep more. And then over the, over the years, you look at the incidence of cancer between the two groups. And uh, immediately I, I was like, uh, such a study is pretty much impossible to pull off. No, no one, is able to make people to decrease or increase the number of hours people sleep for years on end and that you can bring people in a lab for a week or two and you can study short-term effects of sleep on cognition or on various biomarkers but uh, it's it's just like literally impossible to figure out whether long term sleeping six or seven hours a night in the long term doubles your risk of cancer or not. Today's episode is brought to you by Ashford University. We all have an idea of what our dream job looks like, but someone isn't just going to hand it to you. Odds are you'll need at least a bachelor's degree to make that dream a reality. And I know it's hard to go back to school while you're working. That's why you'll love Ashford University. Ashford University is convenient and flexible. Their online bachelor's and master's degree programs allow you to learn at your own pace. You can study wherever you're the most comfortable learning. You can also learn one course at a time. At Ashford University, being enrolled in one class means you're considered a full-time student. And you don't need the stress of taking standardized tests. The SAT, GRE, GMAT, and other standardized tests are not required for enrolling at Ashford University. And the best part, Ashford University is fully accredited. So get on the road to earning your degree and making your dream job a reality. Enroll now by going to ashford.edu slash smart. That's ashford.edu slash smart to start your degree today. One more time, make your dream job a reality. Head over to ashford.edu slash smart. And now back to the episode. Let me play devil's advocate for a minute here, just not because I have a belief, but more it's the way I can draw things out. Sure. Is it fair that if Matthew would have said something like this, given our research capabilities and all of the resources at my disposal, 
it is more likely to assume that less sleep increases cancer to be the case. Would that be a more apt sentence? And the reason I ask is just because it's impossible to do that study. Does it not mean we can infer certain things to the best of our knowledge? Because I think if we relied on perfect studies for everything, we would have very, very limited amount of 100% positive outcomes. I think this is a very good question because we're obviously very interested in the impact of sleep on uh, on illness and on cognitive ability and uh, all of the various other characteristics. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, even if we can't do this perfect ideal long-term study, then does this necessarily mean that we don't know anything or do we still know something about the relationship of sleep and cancer, for example? So my, my position on this is that uh, we should be very cautious about this. And in particular, using, again, using sleep and cancer as an example, basically all of the evidence we have on the relationship between sleep and cancer is correlational evidence where people... Uh, where you basically give people a survey and you ask them uh, how much they sleep and you uh, and then you look at uh, the incidence of cancer and then you correlate the number of hours people sleep to whether uh, they got cancer or not. And for this particular type of study, I do think that uh, the information we get about cause and effect relationship between sleep and, and cancer is essentially zero. And the reason for that is that there are just too many confounding factors. There is just too much noise in, noise in this data. Just to name a couple of factors that affect our ability to infer cause and effect relationship. First of all, uh, all of the sleep data that we have on a big scale is self-reported sleep, and self-reported sleep does not correlate too well with the amount of sleep people actually get, and which means that there's a lot of people who say that they sleep a lot and they actually sleep not sleep that much, and there's a lot of people who don't sleep that much and they say they sleep a lot, and this means that whatever is the actual correlation between uh, sleep length and cancer, it's going to be distorted, distorted quite significantly. Uh, but uh, even more importantly, uh, because this is just a correlational relationship, we don't really know whether which way causation go, go and to, uh, to be more specific. Suppose you have a, a very bad illness that brings you a lot of pain. Then you will not sleep too well, and uh, you will also probably die earlier because of your illness. So in the data, uh, you would see that people who sleep less die earlier, although there is no inherent relationship between sleep and death rate. 
it's just that uh, there is an there's another factor that causes both of these things. So this is one example of a potential factor, but because there are hundreds and thousands of potential factors that affects all of, affect all of the variables in various linear and nonlinear ways, then essentially just by looking at this one correlation between two of these factors, we we get essentially zero information between causal relationship between these two variables, and and, and this is why. Yeah, and also, and also because there are so many variables and they're all related, then at whichever pair of variables you will take a look, there probably will be a correlation between them, either positive or negative. Uh, but like, this is just the nature of how everything is related to everything in the world. Uh, yeah. But again it's it's pretty much impossible to figure out the causal relationship from such data and unfortunately this kind of data is the only kind of data that we have on the question of sleep and cancer and on many 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 other questions uh like for example about diet that we're in pretty similar situation absolutely yeah and diet is one that this podcast alone has spent a lot of time on and myself in in both my personal and my professional life actually running a nonprofit that dealt with diet. So I fully understand this. Let me summarize how I interpret your answer there. And then you tell me if that makes sense or point out the areas where I'm still misinterpreting it. Does that, does sure. that sound okay? Okay. So here's how, what I'm getting so far, you started reading his book and that idea that that sentence uh, that it demolishes the immune system and increases cancer by two times jumped out to you because you don't see how that study could be done. And if it was done, and as you dug into the data, it would have to be a study based on correlation, which as we know, is not a great or really even reliable way to study anything. So I'm gonna pause there. Is So far, are we good? Right, yeah. Okay, okay. so that making such a bold claim based off at best correlation type studies is not helpful. Then let right. me go to this step. Even if we do have to use correlation type studies, those do not support that claim either. So it's like saying, right. first of all, correlation is not useful. But second, if we are going to use correlation, even that doesn't prove this, this case. Is that so far so good? Right. Yep. Okay. So now let me get into your first key point on your blog post, which directly kind of refutes, I'd say, Walker's biggest claim. You say, no, Shorter sleep does not imply shorter lifespan. And you use a study published in Scientific Reports in 2016. You've got a really useful graph on here. And it basically shows that between, honestly, like five and eight hours, you could even go to four, there is no correlation between sleep and relative risk. And then there's a quote uh, from the Encyclopedia of Sleep, which Walker uses in his book. And that quote says, the popular expectation that short sleep is correlated with short lifespan and long sleep with greater longevity is not supported by the existing literature. So what I want to do, because this is a lot of me talking, is just turn it over to you and say, is this first point and this first graph and this first study you saying if we were to use correlative studies, they show that in fact, sleep does not correlate with 
longevity, period. Is that fair? Yep. Okay. Anything you want to dive in or add more to there? <laughs> uh, well, uh, the only thing that I should note is that after such a long discussion of correlational studies and causality, that uh, so it is true that it, there is essentially no correlation between uh, how much you sleep and the probability of dying, or, or not the probability uh, between how much you sleep and uh, all-cause mortality. This doesn't, again, this doesn't really tell us anything about the causal relationship. It still might be entirely true that if you personally cut your sleep for one hour, you will live a shorter life or longer life, and same for the increasing amount of sleep. And like uh, this, uh, the original statement that Walker made in the book did was only talking about correlation. And yeah, the correlation doesn't support his point. Okay. And so let's move on to this, this cancer idea, because right below that, you say Walker does not cite any studies that support this assertion anywhere in the book. And I just have to pause and ask, how is this possible that his biggest premise, cancer, immune system, and death, are not data supported? How do you think that's possible? He had to have known people were going to try to support this. So how can he not give it data backing? So this statement about cancer uh, is featured uh, in the first or the second paragraph of the book. And uh, it, it is listed alongside a bunch of other supposed effects of short sleep on your health and on your life. And I think that I think that what happened was just that Walker was trying to re perhaps remember uh, whatever impressions he had from his professional career and just wrote them down and uh, essentially just never got back to figuring out whether they're supported by the current literature or not. Yeah. And That's a good this is, point. And, yeah, and this is actually a, a, a recurrent pattern throughout the book is that uh, it discusses a lot of scientific findings and it discusses a lot of studies, but it it rarely cites the studies that uh, it discusses. And in a couple of cases, I actually literally had to go to Google and try to find a study that Walker mentioned simply based on like the keywords and the sample sizes, but uh, without them being mentioned anywhere in the book. Yeah. And actually there was a part in your post where you mention, you know, look, if you write a book that's this long about a topic that's this difficult, there's going to be some errors and that's fine. Well, that's not what we're going for here. The problem is you say like, look, I spent 300 hours on 4% of his book, just chapter one. And I found, you know, whatever it is, six glaring errors. That is not the expected or even the um, accepted amount of errors in a book that is to be taken as scientific literature. Right. Why did you decide for those listening to just say, look, I'm going to pick apart chapter one. I'm not going to cherry pick my 10 biggest issues with the book, I'm, I'm going to say, here's chapter one, here is what the data shows and why Walker is wrong, and you do the rest. The reason I did that is because 
uh, as I was reading the book and I was pointing out, I, I was essentially keeping a text file where I, I was like, this doesn't sound quite right and I should get back to this later. And the further I read, the bigger that file got. And by the time I finished the book, uh, I essentially had so much stuff to check and so much stuff to figure out if it is correct or not that I realized there's no way I could go through everything. And then I, I just started, and then and then I thought, okay, what are like the biggest problems in the book? And then and, and then when I started to think about this, I realized that there are so many really big problems and so many exaggerations and misstatements of fact that it's still essentially not possible to write all of this up. And then I just realized that wait, there are so many problems with the book that. It, it just examining the chapter one would be entirely sufficient to uh, to, to demonstrate that it, it is not at all reliable. Well, I think one of the things also to let people know of is you've received numerous messages from many people who are well-versed in sleep, sleep researchers, sleep scientists, et cetera. And I right. read one specifically that said, thanks for doing this. I actually, and this was from a sleep researcher and who said, I actually had the same issues with Walker's book but there were so many that I didn't know where to start. And I really am glad you decided to do it this way. So you've actually gotten other experts in the field's approval who say, thank you for focusing on chapter one, because it allowed you to put it into the world without spending, you know, 10 years on it. Right. Okay. Let's go to a couple of other things here. One of my favorites Walker writes, you said on page four, the World Health Organization has now declared a sleep loss epidemic throughout industrialized nations. And then you straight up go, this is false. And by false, you mean in all of your research, you cannot find a single place where the WHO says there is a sleep loss epidemic in industrialized nations. Tell us a little bit more about that. And how do you think that's even possible? Because that is a big idea. If it's a blatant lie, this claim was actually relatively easy to disprove because Walker actually has a reference for the claim that the World Health Organization has declared a sleepless epidemic. He references a documentary by National Geographic called "Sleeplessness in America." So I just watched the documentary, and it just never mentioned any sleepless epidemics. And then I tried Googling uh, all of the possible combinations of words uh, of World Health Organization and sleep and sleep loss epidemic, and I still couldn't find anything. And uh, I concluded that apparently the World Health Organization has just never declared any sleep loss epidemics. And about the second part of the question, uh, so Walker actually went on BBC to defend his book against my criticism. And he, uh, on the program, he explained that sleep loss epidemic was actually declared by CDC and not the World Health Organization, and that he simply misremembered the source. Oh. Uh, and uh, yeah, and uh, I believe that this position is actually indefensible because uh, it is true that uh, sometime between 2011 and 2015, uh, the CDC had a page on their site that said that sleep loss, uh, there is a sleep loss epidemic in the U.S., but 
more than two years prior to the book's publication, they removed that page. And before removing it, they re renamed the page and wrote that sleep loss is a problem in the US, indicating that even the CDC no longer believed that there is a sleep loss epidemic. And so on BBC, Walker said that uh, he will change the source from the VHO to CDC uh, in the further edition of the book. And I, I believe that this is essentially dishonest because CDC does not believe that there is a sleep loss epidemic in the book. But right. uh, yeah, it, it appears that this claim is not completely made up. It appears that Walker simply saw this page at some point uh, in the past and he just couldn't find it again and thought that this was the World Health Organization and not CDC. If you're going to write your source, then the source needs to be correct. And the reason right. being, you know, not, not just for like, for somebody like you, that's just gospel, but for somebody like me, maybe a casual reader who takes experts at their words often, it's this belief that, look, if you make a mistake, okay, just like a mistake, that's fine. But a mistake that is saying, I got a quote from this place. That's not a mistake. That is a lie essentially, because it's something you can go look at. So it's either a lie or extreme laziness. Now, right. in defense of maybe somebody like Walker, he could say, look, I'm really busy. I know this stuff. I've been doing it forever. Trust me. Boom. Okay, fine. But the issue is then state that in the book, you know, state that in your interviews, say, look, people, this is kind of an amalgamation of my thinking on this topic over the years some of it is proven, and when it's proven, I will state so. Some of it is hypothesis, and when it's that, I will state that. And so that people can form their own opinions. And I think the danger is when you take somebody with the, the formal education and the, the status that he might have, it is easy for people to, to hang on every word. And in fact, you talk about how we are hanging on every word. We are citing it over and over a hundred times. And if you're going to make something this serious, then it should follow the same rigorous criteria that any paper posted in a journal needs to follow, which we know even those are subject to a lot of these issues. Yeah, and it, it, you're entirely correct that it's still like not at all clear why Walker referenced just some random uh, documentary from National Geographic that never mentions sleepless epidemics as his source. And then like, he, 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 so he never explained this, how this came to happen. And look, if you're listening, thinking, guys, you are just picking out things here. Let's just go through another one. All right. You have a part that says kind of tongue in cheek. No, you can't randomly cite 2000 page long books and hope nobody will read them. And essentially it's another one sentence that you refute. But the point is, this is another example of where a reference like literally says the exact opposite of what Walker says. Could you walk right. us through uh, what happened in this reference example? Right. So on page six of the book, and they should note that we're still in the very first chapter. So on page six, Walker writes, every species studied to date sleeps. Uh, and while uh, writing this sentence, Walker references a book uh, called Encyclopedia of Sleep, published in 2013. And uh, this book uh, actually contains more than 2,000 pages. And 
while Walker uh, writes that he got this claim from volume one, he never mentions the page where he got the book. So what what I started doing, I just uh, downloaded the book and started reading it and like uh, started to try to figure out where this claim could originate and try to find out the exact page where uh, it where it says that every species studied today sleeps, because this is a very interesting claim. And it is interesting because there is a lot of debate going on in the scientific literature about whether every species sleeps or whether there are some species that do not sleep. Uh, so I, I opened the book and on page 38, uh, I found that it says, uh, I'm quoting the book now, it, it now appears that many species reduce sleep for long periods of time under normal conditions and that others do not sleep at all in the way sleep is conventionally defined, which is in direct contradiction to what Walker wrote while referencing the book. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. As we kick off the new year, it's time to pay our respects to some things that we won't be bringing into 2020. Things like Game of Thrones, Baby Yoda, Popeye's chicken sandwich shortages, and last but not least, my old wireless plan and insane monthly bill. I'll definitely not miss that because I switched over to Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile can cut your bill down to 15 bucks a month. Seriously, it's the easiest decision you'll make all year. My previous wireless bill was between $82 and $87 a month. I definitely don't miss that. Having that 67 to however many dollars in my pocket is so nice. Imagine the savings you're going to bank when you switch to Mint Mobile and pay just 15 bucks a month. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text plus crazy fast 4G LTE. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. Kick off the year the right way and switch to Mint Mobile. To get a new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com smart. That's mintmobile.com smart. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com smart. And now back to the episode. So the thing that I find most fascinating, other than the direct contradiction, is the book is nearly 3,000 pages. You said it costs about $2,000. I'm not quite sure how you got your hands on it, but you are a resourceful guy, so we'll leave it at that. But I think it's easy enough for somebody to have told him this, or he heard this statistic or this idea somewhere. He put it in his book, and then he said, it's talked about in this encyclopedia. From a podcast perspective, I I talk to experts so that I can take them at their word. Essentially, so I can take somebody with two decades of experience and say, look, what can I learn in 20 minutes that took you two decades? And oftentimes we get that. But after 300 plus episodes, there's this realization that I don't care how smart anyone is. It's very rare that we can take anyone verbatim. And not that that's a bad thing, but that we always have to be willing to think for ourselves. I just think in today's world where we're moving so fast, sometimes it's it's hard, right? It's We want to outsource our thinking. And 
what we've just given are a few examples of how it might not be a good idea to simply outsource our thinking to somebody who maybe does lazy work or hasn't done their research or is biased or something along those lines. Right. And uh, and also to add to this point that what is worse is that even when you're reading a book by an expert who spent two decades in the field, who has all of the right credentials, who has uh, a lot of popularity and who references things where he when he states something even in this case you can't believe him or her without actually checking the reference uh, because it it is a widespread actually a pretty widespread practice where you reference something and you either exaggerate it or maybe you just uh, like never even read the paper and like you just read the title and figured okay you should put a reference so that people would think that this is an authoritative claim and uh yeah so when when reading a book by an expert if something is referenced it, it again it doesn't mean that it's necessarily true and i actually want to expand at this point but in general it's i think it's a good strategy that when you read any nonfiction book and you need to figure out, so can I actually trust the author of the book? Uh, what you can do is to uh, check the first couple of references and just take a look at uh, whatever paper or whatever article they cite and uh, see whether they cite it accurately or not. And this would actually give you a pretty good, this is a, I think that would take uh, only a few minutes and would give you a pretty good idea of whether the author at least references research findings correctly or whether they misstate uh, the, the findings from the... The fact of the matter is, look, I'm going to give benefit of the doubt in a lot of cases. I think that it's not people are blatantly lying. It's just really it's understanding research is hard and it's time intensive. That's just the nature of it. I mean, you, how long does it take you on average to write one blog post? So it varies a lot, uh, but uh, this, uh, uh, the, the post about Walker took me uh, at this point around 150 hours. Okay. So say 150 hours, right? And that's to, to, re to really dig into one chapter, 4% of the book. So if you extrapolate that, we're talking Basically, an amount of time that doesn't always make sense for an author. The reason these things frustrate me, though, is because if you are a researcher and this is what you do, essentially, you should be able to do it a little quicker and we should be able to trust you. Let's let's use another example, which I think is just, I don't know, outright egregious here. You have an appendix. It's number 18 on your blog. And it's really funny. It's titled, What do you do when a part of the graph contradicts your argument? You cut it out. You know, there was a pretty big claim made in the book that a lack of sleep is associated with increased sports injuries in adolescence. And it shows that, and this is right from Walker's book, uh, if you get average six hours of sleep, your uh, percent chance of injury are about 75, seven hours, 60, eight hours, 35, nine hours, 18%. So it's this perfectly linear lowering of your likelihood of injury if you get more sleep. However, you you found an issue. Tell us what that issue was. Right. So 
the issue with that graph is that it was taken from an academic paper and there was a bear removed from the graph that showed that if you get five hours of sleep, the likelihood of injury is actually about the same as when you get seven hours of sleep. And it is less than the likelihood of getting injury uh, when you get six hours of sleep. And so it's like he just cut it out. Now, something like that, there's only one possible answer to this, and it's I need the data to support my hypothesis. There's no way that is on accident because you had to purposely cut it out. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, uh, it's uh, like it's just not possible to do this on accident because like there's a lot of ways to make an accidental mistake and to not notice something. So, for example, with the World Health Organization claim, Walker could just say that or one could say that he was just extremely careless, careless and he didn't bother with, take, with checking the source and he didn't bother with uh, checking the documentary that he referenced and he just didn't bother. But in this particular case, it's like literally impossible to accidentally leave out a bear on the graph. The other thing that I found interesting, because look, as a non-researcher, when I looked at this, I said, okay, so so five was basically less likelihood of injury than six and even seven to some extent. Mm-hmm. But but after five, six, seven, eight, nine, they do show a perfectly linear kind of decrease. So I don't know, maybe there's an answer for that. But then I read that actually the nine hours of sleep column is based on one child being injured out of six who reported sleeping for nine hours. So essentially, even if that linear distribution was right, the data behind it is really not reliable. Right. The last point here is you said that to to note, this problem was actually first noticed by somebody else. Now, I don't know if that's a, a reader or something like that, but I think it goes to a larger point, which is, let me ask you about how many people at this point have read your blog post? It's more than 100,000. Okay. So we'll say 100,000. Now, out of those 100,000, you have to assume a percentage wanted to agree with Walker. Let's say that percentage is even 10%, like one-tenth. Okay? That's 10,000 people with an agenda to contradict what you said. What pushback have you gotten on your argument that has made you rethink your position, if any? I guess I will have a funny answer to this, but uh, I haven't really gotten any feedback that significantly changes uh, my views on anything I wrote. And this was actually surprising to me. I guess the the most significant, uh, uh, the biggest thing that uh, changed is that it no longer seems that Walker simply made up the, his sleep loss epidemic claim. It seems to be an example of an extreme carelessness and disregard for what uh, for whatever was actually stated and when it was stated. But other than that, it seems that all of my all of my major claims stood up and again, what, what it, it is surprising to me that this happened and. In particular, in one of the appendices of my post, I I write that it seems that it might be the case that people who sleep for just six hours a night might have the lowest mortality, which is an extremely surprising statement, and which I made based on, like, 
a novel interpretation of the data uh, where I looked at how much people misreport sleep and how much uh, and if we correct for sleep misreporting, uh, what is the association between sleep and mortality? And I was actually fully expecting someone to point out a mistake here and tell me that I just didn't consider some other factor and that this is actually not the case. And uh, surprisingly to me, this did not happen. And uh, even for the claim that I was least sure of, uh, it, it does right now appear that uh, it might actually be the case that people who sleep for six hours a night, in fact, live longest. Yeah, actually, I wanted to ask you that kind of sort of to put a bow on everything, because people are probably wondering, well, in your opinion, where does the data shake out? And you have a really interesting part about it might be six hours is the sweet spot. Could you tell us how you came to that and what you believe the validity of that data to be? So the way I came to this conclusion is the following. Uh, as I mentioned uh, a while ago, the data between sleep and mortality that we have is based on self-reported amount of sleep. Uh, and it appears that people uh, overestimate how much they sleep quite a lot. So um, as one of the papers I cite uh, writes, the average difference at the mean of six hours measured sleep was 48 minutes meaning that uh, when someone actually sleeps for six hours, they say that they sleep for six hours and 48 minutes. So this is uh, the first part of the argument. The second part of the argument relies on the association between reported sleep and mortality. And mortality is lowest at just below seven hours of reported sleep. So combining these two facts it appears that actually people who, who sleep for six hours but report on average that they sleep for almost seven hours uh, live the longest. And I'm not aware of, uh, again, I, I should note that I'm not aware of anyone actually making any such statements. And uh, initially I was very unsure about this uh, as since no one actually refuted this, I'm more sure. I'm more confident in this statement, but uh, it still might very well be not correct. How has this, you know, reading Walker's book, doing research on it, how has it affected your individual sleep pattern and sleep behavior? So it actually affected me very, very majorly. Now, before reading the book, I was like a very firm believer in the importance of eight hours of sleep. I virtually always slept for eight hours. Whenever I slept for less than seven and a half hours, I forced myself to stay in bed quite frequently. Uh, whenever my classmates in college pulled all-nighters, I always thought that they are like essentially killing themselves. Uh, so, so I was like, I, I thought that, sleeping for eight hours is really, really important. And after reading the book and after digging into the literature and figuring out how much we actually know about sleep and after figuring out what uh, what sleep recommendations are based on, uh, I essentially started to... I essentially thought that 
okay, it appears that we don't really know how much we should sleep and we don't really know how we should sleep. And what I should do is I should just experiment a bunch and figure out what works best for me personally. And instead of just assuming that I need eight hours of sleep, I should try to sleep for six hours. I should try to sleep for seven hours. I should try to sleep for eight hours. I should try taking naps. I should try not taking naps. And after sufficient experimentation, I will figure out what actually works best for me. And so far, it seems that, so in terms of concrete changes to my sleep, uh, I started taking a lot of naps. Like on average day, I now take one or two naps. And I sleep uh, somewhere between five and seven hours a night on average. One other big, I guess, update to my beliefs uh, fr from all of this research is on danger and on effects of sleep deprivation. So one of the things that I discovered in the process of my research is that sleep deprivation is actually a recognized therapy for depression and that sleep deprivation actually increases mood and that uh, for around 40 to 50 percent of people in clinical depression uh, if they get shorter amount of sleep than they usually have uh, then their mood the next morning will actually improve and i started checking checking whether this works and now it does seem to me that being sleep deprived while makes you sleepy and makes the day not very pleasant, to be honest, it does like act as a sort of a stimulant. And uh, I've been discussing this a lot with a bunch of my friends, and I asked uh, some of them to intentionally try to sleep less than they usually sleep. And uh, they actually reported that, yeah, I did feel very sleepy during the day, but my energy level actually seemed to have increased. This week's episode is brought to you by Indeed.com. When you start your hiring process, you may have questions. Will you find good applicants to choose from? What about education and experience? And how will you know you've made the right hire? Indeed is here to help. Millions of great candidates use Indeed every day to find their next opportunity. You can post a job in minutes and use screener questions to help create your short list of applicants fast. Also add skills tests to your job posts so you can be confident in your applicants' abilities. Their library of more than 50 skills tests ranges from industry-specific skills like accounting to general aptitude tests like critical thinking. Indeed gives you the smart tools to make hiring decisions quickly and to be confident that you're making the right hire for your team. Post your job today at indeed.com SPP and get a free sponsored job upgrade on your first posting. That's indeed.com slash SPP. Terms, conditions, and exclusions apply. Offer valid through March 31st, 2020. And now back to the episode. Hmm. Yeah, and I've read that part. I, I found that odd from a personal perspective. It didn't necessarily tie in to the greater argument, because I think something in the short term that might impact mood in the short term, it just seems like a stretch for why it would matter in terms of a greater argument of sleep over the long term as it relates to longevity and health. Right. So, so I think that this is actually quite important because it is uh, like 
I, I do not recommend to anyone to be constantly sleep deprived, but it does seem that sleeping long actually might cause your mood to be worse than if you slept a short amount of time. And even though you can't sleep for five hours every night, it does seem that it might make sense to like sleep, restrict your sleep for one or two times a week and uh, essentially to get this boost uh, to your mood. You know, and, and that... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and this can be done over the long term. Uh, although I focused on improvement of mood and productivity right now, uh, I think that uh, this point is important, especially for people in depression, because uh, I think it, it seems to be a common wisdom that people in depression should like sleep a lot because lack of sleep essentially messes everything up. But it seems that actually, if you're sleeping a ton already, it might make sense to try to cut some sleep out and maybe and th this actually has a good chance to improve your mood and to make you less depressed. One of the biggest takeaways for me, and just the other day this happened to me, I woke up early. So I went to bed probably around midnight or one. I woke up around six with my kids. And so it was only five hours of sleep. And I felt really good. Like I felt fine. But I knew I only had about five hours of sleep. So when they went off to school, I went back to bed and I slept for quite a while and I woke up and I was groggy and I was tired and I remained that way for most of the day. Now, right. what, I, what I find so odd about that is that I've done that for years. Yeah, this is actually exactly what I used to do as well. Uh, there used to be cases where I just woke up after the after five or six hours of sleep, felt great, but was like, wait, I didn't sleep enough. And I just went back to bed and then felt worse. Yeah. And what this reminds me of is breakfast. And here's what I mean, right? Breakfast for the longest time, conventional wisdom was most important meal of the day. Well, our very first interview was with this guy. His name's Dr. Walter Willett. He's this researcher, Harvard guy. He is not some flashy, shiny I'm on the front page type guy. He is an in-depth researcher. And I'll never forget, I asked him, should I eat breakfast? And he said, if you're hungry. He said, it's perfectly fine to skip breakfast if you're not hungry. Here's mm -hmm. the funny part. That was about 10 years ago. Well, now if you think about it, the in thing is time-restricted eating. And what does that essentially mean? Skipping breakfast. So basically what I'm saying is that, and what you're advocating for, I've heard multiple times is, we can learn as much as we can. That's what this podcast for. That's what your blog's for. That's what reading is for. And then apply it to our own lives in a series of mini studies, if you will, mini trials, mini experiments, and then figure out what works for us. Right. Here's one thing. And I have to say this because I think people listening to this are probably going, this makes sense, but it's too easy to be pulled back into the Matthew Walker aura, if you will. On your blog post, there's a uh, clip from an interview that he gave. And here's a quote of what he says. He says that cancer is now strongly related to insufficient sleep. That includes cancer, of the bowel, prostate, and breast. So much so that in fact, the World Health Organization recently classified any form of nighttime shift work as a probable carcinogen. And, and that's the end of the quote. What would you take away from that statement? And how do you then go, well, 
sleep is not related to cancer or might not be. Actually, for this claim, I would do the exact same thing that I did for uh, the sleep and cancer claim uh, that was in the book. And so actually, it, it actually appears that the World Health Organization did declare night nighttime shift work as a probable carcinogen. Uh, but again, if you think about this, uh, how would they could have determined that? And uh, it seems that the way they determined that sleep probably causes cancer is just by looking at the correlational data and seeing that people who work nighttime shifts have higher incidence of cancer and concluding based on this data that nighttime shift causes cancer. And again, it, it just doesn't seem credible to me. And uh, in this particular case, uh, I would actually, I don't advise disregarding the World Health Organization on everything, but in this particular case, uh, I would, I, I don't expect uh, this uh, classification of nighttime shift work as a probable carcinogen to be actually supported by the actual data. There's a lot to break down. So first is, how did they come up with this? Second is, they call it a probable carcinogen. So we're talking, it might be. And then the third thing is, this is nighttime shift work. So making the, no pun intended, making the shift from nighttime shift work might cause cancer to getting less than eight hours causes cancer. That's a, that's a big jump. Right. All right. So let's kind of wrap up this sleep thing. A couple of quicker questions. One is, has Walker contacted you at all? Uh, Walker did actually reply to my work. Uh, BBC interviewed me and BBC also interviewed Walker about my post. And uh, he gave a, a, his comments about several of my statements, which uh, were essentially either admitting that I was right or uh, in some cases, his defenses were pretty weak, I believe. And so he did respond on the program. And you can Google, uh, the program is called More or Less. Uh, and More or Less on the BBC? Yep. Awesome. Okay, we have to link to that. I will make sure we get that in there because that's great. I mean, this is what we're trying to do. Good. Okay. Right. And uh, the other uh, thing, there was a blog post uh that replied to a lot of claims that seemed like what I said in my post. Uh, and it was written under the handle of Sleep Diplomat, which is the handle that Matt Walker uses on social media. And a lot of people think that this is uh, Matt Walker's response to my post, but uh, it's... Uh, it's not clear to me whether it's actually him or someone else because he never acknowledged this post and he didn't mention this it on BBC. He never mentioned it on social media. The post itself never mentions uh, him directly and never links to any of his other social media. But if that post is indeed written by Walker, then uh, he, he did in fact uh, write a, a pretty long post trying to respond to me. Oh, okay. So if that's him, he did, but we don't know if it's him or not. Yeah. He never okay. publicly confirmed or 
denied that it was written to him and there is no connection to any of his identities. I see. So it most likely wasn't because for somebody in his stature, if he was going to make a formal statement, I would think he would want to make it known. That just right, wouldn't so, make sense. Right. So on BBC, he actually uh, said that, or he actually said that uh, he will reply to the points I raised. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I would assume that he would somehow he he would do it directly rather than okay. by an anonymous WordPress blog. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, one thing I found really fascinating for somebody who personally I I enjoy formal titles and education. I don't know why. It's just something I've always enjoyed. I read a part where there's some confusion about where he got his PhD. Have you made any headway on that? Could you help our listeners understand what's going on there at the moment? Yeah. So this is a funny issue, uh, which is not related to any of the claims uh, in the book, but Walker's site and a bunch of his other profiles say that he got his PhD degree from the Medical Research Council in London, UK. However, it appears that the Medical Research Council does not grant PhD degrees, and it is a non-degree-granting institution. It just funds scientific research, kind of like NIH in the US, where NIH can fund your work, but NIH itself does not award PhD degrees. And uh, I look, so I, I looked into this, and it appears that Walker actually got his PhD degree from University of Nottingham, but uh, for some reason, his site never mentions his university while saying that he got a degree from a place that doesn't grant PhD degrees. That's so weird. So I remember, let's see, I'll pull it up right here. So on Wikipedia, it says he received his PhD in neurophysiology from Newcastle University. So that's what it says on Wikipedia. Yeah, Newcastle University. But then... On sleepdiplomat.com, it says he received it from the Medical Research Council in London, which is what you're talking about. Yep. And that's, as far as we know, that's his primary website? I mean, it is when I Googled it. Sleepdiplomat.com. Now, I'm not saying this is this kind of huge deal. This isn't like a, it, but it is, it was something interesting I wanted to highlight. Right. And it is just like fits into this bigger pattern of just exaggerating things and misrepresenting things. I guess there's two last things. One is, and I just want to highlight this for the listeners, and you can expound on this if, if you'd like. It sounds like you've heard from a lot of sleep researchers who have messaged you basically thanking your work specifically because they have seen this book cause a lot of harm. Could you explain how something like educating people on sleep can be harmful. Why we sleep is written in such a definitive tone, and it says with such confidence that if you don't sleep for eight hours of sleep, all sorts of problems with your health and your cognitive ability will arise, and that essentially your whole life will be a complete mess, that it appears to have been causing a lot of anxiety a lot of sleep anxiety in people and several uh, people who uh, professionally uh, help people uh, sleep better, who do cognitive behavioral therapy for sleep and who treat 
uh, insomnia in people actually emailed me and wrote me that uh, they are thankful for my post because the book has been causing so much anxiety that a lot of their clients go to them right after reading the book. They just become unable to fall asleep because they can't stop thinking about the dangers of not having enough sleep. I know it's been a hell of a long time, and I really appreciate you taking this time. I just want to totally wrap up the sleep thing and say, is there anything else you would like to say kind of on the record about everything we've been discussing? If not, no problem. I just want to give you kind of the last word here. One, one last thing I want to mention is that uh, a lot of people listening to this I'm still probably not going to be convinced by uh, whatever arguments I made. And uh, they will think that, well, sleep is extremely important. Uh, Why We Sleep is a pop science book. And it is okay that it is kind of careless with its sources, that sometimes it's exaggerated things, but it's all in the name of the greater good. And as long as people sleep more, then it, it was basically worthwhile. And while I agree with this sentiment somewhat, I, I do not believe that pop science books should basically be as rigorous and as precise as academic literature. Why We Sleep doesn't is not in fact a pop science book. And Matthew Walker in introduction writes that he intends the book to be scientifically accurate. And what is more is he actually, he himself, cites the book in his academic papers and he actually gets the facts that he mentioned in the book without providing any sources and then he gets these facts and then mentions them in his academic papers uh, resulting in essentially false or exaggerated claims then being entered into the research literature and in creating this perception that why we sleep is this scholarly work. When you start doing this, when you start citing your book in your academic papers, and when you say that it is in fact intended to be scientifically accurate, you kind of lose the ability to say that, oh, I was just writing pop science, I wanted to educate people and I, I, I did not have to be as precise as possible. Uh, I believe that this is basically deceptive. To highlight that point, and I'll mention this in the introduction, but Walker does have a lot of credentials to his name. So think about this. He has all of these credentials. And in a sense, that's very important. I mean, coming from my podcast, that's important. But in the same token, when you have all of these credentials, when your life, your career, your money is all based on this, there is, if you want to take this stance, an incentive to prove how important sleep is to one, make sure you are the authority in the field, but two, to also prove the necessity of your career and career path. Now, I am not at all saying that's what Walker did, but it's worth thinking about. I also want to say that... On Wikipedia, it said that his book has drawn criticism from a guy named Andrew Gelman, who is a statistician at Columbia. And what he said is, Walker's purported removal of a bar from a graph is a smoking gun and that it entered research misconduct territory. And that removal of a bar from a graph is the exact bar that you are speaking of, I would imagine. Andrew Gelman's post is actually based on my post. 
before I let you go, okay, I wanted to make this a longer conversation about the whole Russia thing, but I don't, I can't keep you on any longer. So I just want to ask you this. What do you think about Americans? I'm going to make it that simple. Like, what do you think about us over here? I think Americans are great. So I actually visited the U.S. a few times, and one of the things, and you can read people in different countries, and I always have this feeling when when I visit Europe that Europe is kind of this very slow, archaic place, and kind of slow, archaic, sleepy place, and instead, in contrast, whenever I visit the US, uh, it basically seems uh, so alive and uh, and so forward-looking. Uh, and uh, I, I just honestly really, really enjoy. You know, you know, you know Alexi, that's the exact kind of response a Russian spy would give. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are drivers in Russia really as bad as they seem on Reddit? <laughs> uh, driving in Russia is dangerous. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, like every crazy thing that happens in a car, it's always in Russia. And I'm so right. confused why that is. I'm talking people like just running people over or jumping out of their car and hitting them with a bat or like crazy stuff that of course happens in every country. That's not what I'm saying. Everybody calm down. It just seems from a total individual perspective that it's always Russia centric. Why is that? I think it's a combination of Russia being sort of westernized and uh, having access to technology rich enough so so that people, almost everyone can afford dash camps while also having this uh, let's say Russian culture where is encouraged and where reckless behavior is somewhere encouraged. Well, I had to ask. Well, look, Alexi, I mean, I just have to say, you know, in all honesty, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your transparency. Thank you for your work. Thank you for being on this podcast for far longer than I asked you to originally. Um, I really wanted to do this topic, the, the service it deserves. So we've mentioned your website is guzy.com. That's G-U-Z-E-Y.com. Tell us like how we can support you, how we can make sure that you and people like you kind of keep doing this work. And also, what would you recommend for us to follow you? I mean, if we want, if we say, okay, I like this stuff, how do I make sure I keep up to date? What do we do? If you want to follow me, you should subscribe to my email newsletter and or follow me on your Twitter handle is just your name. So it's at Alexi Guzzi. So it's A-L-E-X-E-Y-G-U-Z-E-Y. Yep. There we go. That was our interview with Alexi Guzzi. Head over to guzzi.com to read the blog post, Matthew Walker's Why We Sleep is Riddled with Scientific and Factual Errors, which most of this interview focused on. And I'm sure you heard Chris mention in the intro, we are on Patreon. You can head over to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And by becoming a patron for just 2 or $5 a month, you can potentially ask guest questions, find out who's coming up on new episodes. And if you're in the $5 tier, you get the ad-free feed. We're trying to figure out the best ways to sustain the show. So if you support us on there, we'd greatly appreciate it. And if you're looking for free and easy ways to support the show, 
head over to iTunes or whatever platform you get the podcast from and leave us a rating and review. And if you'd like to reach out to the show, email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Of course, we have our website with our whole back catalog and our newsletter. So just head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up. So we will see you all next episode.